Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Now, in this video, I want to share with you some insights into the Christian Bible, things that are not usually known. And I'm going to be drawing on this book, How the Bible Actually Works, by Peter Enns, who is a professor of biblical studies in the U.S., and I just want to read a few paragraphs from a chapter where he talks about something which is not really understood at all well. And it's this, that the New Testament writers, whether they be the Gospel writers or Paul or James or Peter, whoever they are, when they quote from the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, usually, or in fact virtually always quote from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So they're not quoting from the Hebrew Bible, the original language, but from a translation. Now, why are they doing this? Well, the Jews who were living uh, second, third century BC, when they produced this Greek translation, uh, were living in a world that had been conquered by Alexander the Great in the fourth century. And he had basically conquered most of the Mediterranean world, introduced and spread Greek ideas, Greek philosophy, Greek reason, culture and language. And the Jews, many of whom were living in the diaspora around the Mediterranean, um, obviously wanted to translate their Bible into their own language. So they translated it into the Septuagint, as it's called. Um, but there's some interesting points here that uh, Peter Enns brings up, and I want to share them with you. So he, he talks about the Jews living in the Greek period and the challenges they face, because these were monotheistic people living in a pagan environment. And they address these challenges that they face in a number of ways, he writes, one of which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. There's a little footnote at the bottom here, which is quite helpful. The Septuagint means, in English, 70. And the name is based on a Jewish legend that six members of each of the 12 tribes, so 72, were sequestered on an island and miraculously cranked out the translation in short order. But the historical truth, he says, is more complicated. The Greek translations were probably grassroots efforts made in many different places uh, over time after the Greek conquest. But the important point here is the New Testament writers almost always relied on this translation, this Septuagint. So it's not a minor point, this. Now, he goes on and says translations are great places for religious groups, ancient and modern, to introduce course correctives to some things that might cause embarrassment. Now, he doesn't mention it in this book, but some very recent, very good translations of the Bible have introduced uh, more, shall we say, culturally sensitive language for the Western audience. So there's, you know, the language is changing and adjusting itself to the latest cultural fashions. We still see that going on today. But back to Peter Enns, you give some examples. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, in Hebrew, it says that God finished 
the work of creation on the seventh day. Now, Peter ends being a biblical scholar. He can read the Hebrew, he can read the Greek. And he says in Hebrew, it says, God finished the work of creation on the seventh day. Does that sound a bit odd? Which, if you think about it, suggests that God actually did some work on the seventh day and then took the afternoon off. But that would imply that God broke on page one of the Bible, his own commandment to do no work on the Sabbath. The Greek translators saw the problem and made a minor adjustment. And they wrote, in translating into English, he finished on the sixth day his works. Now God doesn't contradict himself. Problem solved. Another example. The Hebrew word for a sacrificial altar Mizbeach, if I pronounce that correctly in Hebrew, Mizbeach, is used pretty much across the board in the Old Testament, no matter whose altar it is. Whether it be a pagan or a Jewish altar, it doesn't matter. It's the same words used. The Greek translators, however, like to use two different words in their translation, depending on whether the altar was Israelite or pagan. That change helped clarify that sacrificing to God is nothing like sacrificing to other gods. Not a bad adjustment for Jews living in Greek polytheistic culture, trying to maintain their identity amid the temples and strange gods all around them. So he, what, what Peter is doing here is giving us a number of examples of how this Greek translation, um, subtly or not so subtly, alters the words of the original Bible to make it more up-to-date, more acceptable to people in the Hellenistic world. Um, <clears throat> and um, this matters because this Greek translation is the very translation used by New Testament writers. They're not quoting from the original. Another example. In Hebrew, in Exodus 24.10, says rather casually that Moses and a party and of more than 70 Israelites saw the God of Israel. That's what it says in the Hebrew, they saw the God of Israel, which is a problem because no one is actually supposed to be able to see God. The Greek translation shifts the focus, literally. They, quote, saw the place where the God of Israel stood. They saw the place where the God of Israel, they just look and see God, they just saw the place where he stood. Likewise, after instructions for building the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant, God says, there I will meet with you, Exodus 25, 22. In the Septuagint, God says, I will make myself known to you, which avoids the possibility of God's physically appearing to Moses, a subtle but important change. And again, in Numbers 3.16, it's a book in the Bible, where the Hebrew refers to God's very human-like mouth, the Greek translation replaces mouth with God's voice. Yes, humans have voices too, but at least now God doesn't have a body. So he's suggesting here that the Greek translators change the, the language used to describe God to make it fit in with Greek philosophical ideas about God not having a body, being, being an abstraction, being eternal, and not being this quite anthropomorphic figure we see often in biblical passages. The Septuagint, he says, this is the Greek translation. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Really wants to make God seem more well godlike. Godlike to a Greek Jewish audience, that is. Another example in Genesis 6, 6. Chapter 6, verse 6, which still troubles some readers today. Yahweh, it says, says he was sorry he created humans. So God is sorry he created humans in Genesis 6, 6. And it says it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him. God was grieved because they kept sinning, which led God to drown everyone. How can someone the Jews claim to be the true God seem so indecisive, not to mention prone to reactive human-like emotions, Peter Enns asks. So the Greek translation simply gets rid of that idea altogether. Instead of being sorry, the Lord thought deeply. That's what the Greek says. The Lord thought deeply. Instead of grieving, God pondered. Yeah, so God does, is not sorry, he thought deeply. He's not grieving, he pondered. Now God is very, a very Greek-like, rational. He's in control of the whole process. God isn't taken off guard and doesn't change his mind. Remember, this is the Bible, the Greek Bible, that's quoted in the New Testament, not the, not the original Hebrew. Just to make a point, apparently the ancient Israelites weren't bothered by Genesis 6.6. 6. But we are, he says, we should let that sink in. Christians today, and by the way, this book is really written with an eye to Christians today and how Christians, particularly American Christians, deal with the biblical texts. Christians today perhaps have more in common with Jews living in a Greek world than we would with the, uh, the Israelites of the time of David and Solomon. We expect certain things of God and are bothered when we don't see them in the Bible. So he's talking about how many average Christians in America, particularly, they read the Old Testament for the first time and they see depictions of God that disturb them. And the Greek translators change the wording very often to kind of soften that or to take away the problem. And he basically approves of this, by the way. So another example. Likewise, according to Exodus 4.24, in the Hebrew, of course, Yahweh is waiting for Moses by the side of the road to, somewhat shockingly, kill him. When he had just gotten done convincing Moses to go back to Egypt and deliver the Israelite slaves. The Greek translation, clearly concerned with such a painful, ungodlike about face, God suddenly changing his mind, says that the angel of the Lord was waiting for Moses. So it's not God anymore, it's an angel. Sure, that doesn't solve the problem entirely, he writes, but at least God has a buffer. So God now is not directly implicated in killing one of his prophets or trying to kill one of his prophets, having just convinced Moses to go back to Egypt and deliver the Israelite slaves. These examples, Peter N says, illustrate a vital concept for us. 
Jews at the time changed their sacred texts to clarify, in inverted commas, in their time and place, what God is like. They changed the Bible to accommodate their culture. Now, this is a really important point. And I, I think it's pretty much irrefutable. The evidence is there in the Hebrew and the Greek that the, the Jews of that time changed the Bible to make it accommodate, to make it conform, to make it fit in with the culture of the Hellenistic world, the world of Alexander the Great, Greek thought, Greek philosophy, Greek customs, Greek understandings of God. And the Bible is literally changed. And it's that Bible that is, as I say, used by the New Testament writers. And then he goes on and again with an eye to the contemporary issues in modern America. All this reminds me of a recent controversy, he writes, among some Christians, namely whether Bible translations today should use gender inclusive language. In other words, to, <clears throat> to use language that refers to male and female rather than just male, because often in the Greek, uh, it refers to um, uses the male term, and so a gender-inclusive language refers to male and female. Talk about a food fight, he says. <laughs> Whatever might we might one might think of it, the argument that gender-inclusive language is simply compromising the Bible for the sake of culture rings rather hollow. He says when we look at what the Jews were doing about 2,300 years ago. They produced a culturally influenced Bible translation. The translation that, oh sweet irony, became the Bible of the New Testament writers. I'll leave it there. So here's a, here's a writer who is a fairly progressive, fairly liberal evangelical Christian. And so he, you know, he is making a virtue out of necessity. Necessity is we've got to face the facts that the, uh, the New Testament writers were quoting from a translation which has substantially altered the Hebrew Bible. So we can kind of do the same again. We can introduce gender inclusive language. And he goes on later to talk about other things uh, to do with homosexuality and gay marriage. And he, he is allowing these changes to justify further changes to uh, the biblical uh, text and our understanding of what God's word is to us today. So um, I'm obviously not focusing on that so much, but just on how the New Testament writers quoted from a translation that had already altered and changed the text of the Hebrew Bible itself. And then of course, we mustn't forget that we read the New Testament in English. So we have the Hebrew original, we have the Greek New Testament, which quotes from a translation of the Hebrew, and then it's translated again into English. You have this layer upon layer upon layer of every act of translation, by the way, isn't just a mechanical process. It's an act of interpretation. It's not um, a simple word for word translation. It's, uh, every act of, tra uh, of translation is an interpretation itself. Anyway, that's um, what I wanted to say. And uh, I do recommend this book. It's written in a quite a, a tabloidy way to a popular American audience. And even though this style is very American in places, um, I think there are a lot of hard nuggets of fact in here which are worth getting to know about uh, if you want to understand how the Bible actually works. Until next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.